0: Now let's turn for our second reading and for our text as well to the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 26. And what we have here is another account of the same incident. And of course it contains differences simply because it is another account. None of these differences are irreconcilable to each other, but they are nonetheless significant. Matthew 26, and uh, we'll read at verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done, will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Again, we pray uh, God's blessing uh, upon the reading of his word. And uh, with God's help, let's uh, focus particularly on verse 8 this morning. When his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. As I said before the first reading, last Lord's Day, we looked at Christ uh, sitting at another table in the house of another man called Simon, this time Simon the Pharisee, and uh, that was earlier on in the ministry of the Lord. And as he sat at the table, we saw another woman coming and breaking an alabaster box, and anointing our Lord's feet with a perfume. And uh, it is only natural, I think, that we turn to consider this incident too. We move forward to the close of Christ's ministry. This particular incident, in Bethany, takes place six days before the crucifixion. Again, we find Christ at a table, And again another woman comes bringing an alabaster box which she breaks and she anoints him with the fragrant oil. Now there are obvious things in common in the two incidents. But nonetheless they are quite different. And I think that will come to the fore the more we look at this one. As I said it takes place a week before his death And this takes place in Bethany, which is just two miles out of Jerusalem, and it takes place in the house of a man called Simon the leper. Obviously, he's not still a leper. If he was, he wouldn't be able to live in his house like this and to entertain people, to show them hospitality as he's doing so. It's obvious that a leper is what he was, and that draws our attention to the fact that He has been healed himself by the Lord Jesus Christ. The name stuck to him, and in some ways the name sticking to him, perhaps highlights forever what the Lord has done for him. Similar in a sense to Rahab the harlot still being referred to as that, even after she came to a knowledge of the Lord. Now the thing is that Bethany is better known in the word of God for another house. Not the house of Simon, the leper, but the house of a brother and two sisters, Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary. It's in their house that we usually find the Lord at times of feasts. Our Lord went to Jerusalem at the times of feasts, three times a year, and like others who came from the north or from elsewhere, they would have to find lodging. And the Lord lodged in Bethany, where he had doubtless many times of precious fellowship with Lazarus and uh, with Martha and Mary. But here he's in the house of Simon the leper. And it's interesting just to note that, that in Bethany there were obviously others too who had come to know and to love the Lord. And they also followed the example of uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus by opening their homes to the Lord and opening their homes to the Lord's people, especially at a time of communion. And you'll remember that that's exactly what the Passover was. The Passover is the old Lord's Supper, if you like, whereas our uh, communion now is the new Lord's Supper. And uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus were the first to open their house in Bethany, because when the Lord sent out his messengers two by two into every village, um, he sent them to see where there was hospitality, uh, so that he could visit there later himself. So clearly, that precedent was set by Martha and Mary and Lazarus, but here you have others following it. Now, we should always take that kind of thing to heart. While it's good to go to people's houses and enjoy fellowship there, you must try to make sure that your own house is a house of fellowship too, that it is a house where the Lord delights to dwell and a house where the Lord's people delight to dwell as well. And so Simon the leper organised a fellowship meal for the Lord and for the Lord's people. But although the meal is held in his house, it's quite a remarkable thing that our attention is drawn to those three people who often hosted Christ in Bethany. They are all guests of Simon the leper. He delighted to ask Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And their presence Um, is a surprise in different ways. First of all, Lazarus, his presence is is a surprise because he's a living miracle. Just a few days before this, he was dead. In fact, we, we can say of him that he was alive, he was dead, and he's now alive again. And what's more, he's twice born, born according to the flesh and born according to the spirit. And it's really a living miracle that he is sitting beside Christ at this meal. The the second person who surprises us is his sister Martha. The only thing we're told about her at this feast is that she served. That's all. Martha was there and she served. Now, you'll remember that some time before this, she had been rebuked and rebuked in connection with her serving. Now, I don't know how many women were involved in serving at this meal. We're only told that Martha was there and that she did it it's quite possible that she was asked to do it because she probably had a gift for doing it. But even though the Lord rebuked her in connection with her gift, it didn't mean that she withdrew her gift or that she was ever reluctant to exercise it again. When the Lord rebuked her, she took it to heart, in other words, and here she is still glad to serve. You know, very often it's the case when Someone pulls us up for something we're doing, and perhaps if we think it's something that we're good at ourselves, it's quite possible for us to take offence and perhaps not not do it anymore or say to the church, You know, uh, you spoke to me about this, so I'm not doing this in the church anymore. Um, Others can do it. I'm not going to do it. But that wasn't her spirit. She's glad to serve. It's notable. That's the reason it's noted here. And Martha served. Um, She served with a better sense of proportion than she did before, and she served with a better sense of priority too. She now knows that there's a time to serve, and there's a time to be served, especially uh, when Christ is serving you a portion from his own word. We are told earlier that Mary valued that portion, and she received it. And Martha was rebuked because of her wrong sense of priority and proportion. But here, everything is put right. Uh, Let the righteous smite me. It shall a kindness be. And how much more when the Lord himself rebukes us through the preaching of, of the word or the reading of it. Let him smite me. It shall a kindness be. But our special attention is drawn to their sister. She has her own Purpose in view when she comes to this feast. Like the woman we saw last week, she takes the alabaster box with her. And and I'm sure, like that other woman, it's probably the most expensive item in her house. Judas quickly calculated that the flask of ointment would be worth around about 300 denarii. Now, one denarii was a reasonable day's wage for a laborer so you have effectively got a year's wage and uh, it's quite easy to believe that this thing worth a a five-figure sum today easily is the most expensive thing in her home she takes it with her she takes it with her very deliberately It's the genuine article. Again, we're told that the flask was broken, which means it was sealed, therefore, it was authentic. But unlike the other woman, she knows exactly what she's going to do with it. Now, in connection with the other woman, I can't be certain that she didn't. But there's something about that incident that makes you feel that what the woman does is spontaneous. Certainly, she took the flask that other woman. She took it to the house of the Pharisee because she certainly designed to honor the Lord with it in one way or another, but you get the feeling that it's as she began to cry and to wipe his feet with her hair that she had the idea of anointing him with the ointment, and certainly without in any way minimizing what that woman did, she didn't have in mind what Mary had in mind when she anointed the Lord. What she is doing is much more spiritually profound, if you like, or insightful than what that other woman was doing. But that's just running a bit ahead of ourselves. Let's just say for the moment that when Mary takes her flask of um, spikenard, very precious oil, that she knows exactly what she intends to do when the Lord is sitting at the table. And we read in the Gospels that as the Lord is at the table, she comes up to him and she breaks the flask. And unlike the other woman, she pours it out twice on the Lord. There are two distinct applications of oil. First of all, she pours it out on his head. Now, the other woman did not do that. What she did was confined to the feet of the Lord. But Mary specifically applies the ointment to his head. Now, John doesn't tell us that. That's why I'm taking the reading. Well, no, it's not the main reason I'm taking the reading from Matthew. But it's it's one thing that we note in Matthew. Matthew and Mark both tell us that she anoints his head. John tells us specifically that she anoints his feet. John also tells us that like the other woman, she wipes the Lord's feet with her hair, but there's no word of tears. That doesn't mean that Mary is not crying. She may or may not be, but there's no mention of Mary's tears. Uh, This is not spontaneous. This is planned, and uh, Mary is not just lavishing love upon her Savior. She's doing something more than that. She is preaching. She intends to preach in the way in which many men and women can preach through the things that they do. And she's communicating a lot more, perhaps, than we realize. And it's fitting that the Lord should say, when it's all done, that what Mary does will be spoken of. And throughout the world, whenever the gospel is preached. The reason for that is not just because the love in it is so great, it's because of the meaning in it is so profound. Mary knows that and she intends that. She has a lot in view when she anoints the Lord. So in effect, by anointing his head and his feet, you could almost say that there is a whole body anointing taking place here. It's taking place Performed by a woman in full possession of herself and uh, knowing exactly what she's doing. And that's what's the case with the other anointing. The room was filled with fragrance. Now we're not told that in connection with the other woman, but it just stands to reason. This is extremely expensive ointment. And to pour a bottle on a person means that the person is fragrant and that the room is fragrant. And here we're told specifically that the room is filled with the fragrance. I would say, or I would suggest that the room is also full of silence, just as it was on the other occasion, as people simply try to process what is happening and trying to understand what's happening. Now, last week, we looked at what the, the woman did, who, who was a sinner. We looked at it through the eyes of two people, if you remember. We looked at it through the host Simon the Pharisee, how he saw what the woman did and how he evaluated what the woman did. And we also saw it through the eyes of the chief guest at that meal, who was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw it very differently. Now, I think it's best to take exactly the same approach to this anointing and to see it through the eyes of two very different people. First of all, through the eyes of Judas Iscariot. How did he see it? How did he evaluate it? And second, through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as we do that, we will end up seeing Mary herself. Uh, We'll end up seeing how people saw her and how the Lord saw her. And of course, I hope you know as well as I do that it's the Lord's judgment that matters. We'll see in a minute that other people's judgment was way off the mark. But it's the Lord's judgment that matters. There's a comfort in that. You can often be misunderstood even when you're doing well. You can be misunderstood when your intention is good. You can be misunderstood when you speak well. But the Lord knows. And the Lord knows the heart. And it's his judgment that matters. And Mary had been. And uh, every reason, as we'll see, to be thankful for that. Now, however uncomfortable and unpleasant it is, I think we have to begin with Judas. And it is tempting, in a way, just to gloss over him because he puts a blot on this incident. And um, there's something in us that would simply rather look at Mary anointing the Lord. But we can't gloss over Judas. Because the Bible here doesn't just reveal the heart of Mary, it also reveals the heart of Judas. And their hearts are revealed in their attitude to Christ. And Christ is always the touchstone by which we are judged. And at one time or another, the secrets of all men's hearts will be exposed in their attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference, at least once Christ is preached, once Christ is lifted up before you, and once you have heard of him. That is what makes the difference. That is what exposes one heart after another and what highlights the difference between them. What think ye of Christ? I suppose, in a way, one of the disturbing things here is that you would never really guess from the words of Judas alone, what he thinks of Christ. Because as we'll see in a while, his words are pretty plausible. And they're pretty persuasive too. But nonetheless, um, the secrets of his heart are being revealed here. And certainly, uh, they're seen by the Lord Jesus Christ. We can hide for a long time who we are. We can hide what our attitude to Christ really is. We can gloss it over by something like church attendance. If, if the constraints of our community or our peer group require us, well, just to conform to these things. We can hide it all, but it can't stay hidden forever. Love will be revealed and hatred will be revealed too. And that's why we have to acknowledge that there's a dark side to this incident. I mean, when you read it, you don't just smell the fragrance of life and of love and of faith. You, you smell the fragrance of death and hatred and unbelief. This room, the room where this feast is held, is as full of bad as it is of good. And we need to recognize that. I think in connection with that, it's worth pointing this out, just how quickly the devil came in when good was being done. When good was being done by the Lord's uh, disciple, uh, when it was being done by his people and being done for himself, the devil comes in. You would have expected in, in this place, just a few days before the crucifixion of Christ, when when those who love the Lord are gathering together, you would have expected when they dwell together here in unity that there would be nothing to disrupt it. But the first voice you hear in the room after the act is done is the voice of the devil. Isn't that amazing? The most spiritual act imaginable has just been performed, and the first voice you hear is the devil's voice. The devil's voice, putting his own gloss on it, sounding plausible, but as always seeking to kill and to destroy. You know, friends, I I don't think we can ever be forewarned enough in connection with this. When you see good, uh, you're immediately disarmed because you're filled with the presence of God. You're seeing the Lord at work, you're conscious of his guidance and you're conscious of his love and the love of his people, and then before you know where you are, in comes the devil. Now, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, or at least it ought to leave you forearmed. Always be vigilant. Always watch for your adversary, the devil. I mean, who would have thought he would have come in immediately after this flask is broken? The flask is broken The fragrance released in the first voice is the voice of the devil. I'll come back to that in a moment. So we can't sanitize this event and we can't airbrush Judas out of it. He was there and he spoke. And in fact, if it wasn't for Christ's intervention at this time, it would all have turned out very differently for Mary and for everybody else in the room. Well then, let's see it through the eyes of Judas Iscariot. Now, our Savior says that uh, a good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. Of course, that's equally applicable to women. A good woman, out of the good treasure of her heart, brings forth good things. That was Mary. But an evil man, Jesus says, an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil things. There you have Judas. But when he speaks, it's strange that there's nothing obviously wrong with what he says. There's nothing obviously wrong with it. Why, he says. And uh, you'll notice that the gospel when reading, both Matthew and Mark, tell us that all the disciples were angry at what had happened. But John very carefully points out, and the spirit leads him to do this, John very carefully points out that the originator of the disquiet was Judas. And uh, because he's the treasurer, he has the money, he quickly works out what this is worth. Why, he says, why this waste? Why, Why this waste? What sense does it make? This bottle, he said, could have been sold. For 300 denarii and the proceeds given to the poor. It's always easy to get uh, quick points by speaking up for the poor. Speaking up for the poor is what the Lord did. Speaking up for the poor is what the disciples did. And speaking up for the poor is what every true Christian will do. But sometimes people do it. Uh, just to get people alongside. Although Judas here speaks for the poor, we're told by John that he didn't care for the poor. They weren't really at the top of his priority list. Now, there are some people who can make careers of speaking on behalf of the poor. And uh, incidentally, they can do very well financially out of speaking on behalf of the poor. And uh, Judas was like that. It was plausible enough for him to express some kind of care for the poor because we're told that he had the money box. Judas was the treasurer. He was in charge of the finances, and uh, he often gave to the poor. (laughs) For reasons we'll see in a minute, he probably wasn't too happy about that. But just as Christ and the apostles received money, so they gave money, and it would be Judas's duty to disperse it. You remember, on the just a few nights after this, a few nights after this, when when they were gathered around the first Lord's table, um, Jesus was troubled in spirit. He turned to Judas and said, "What you do, he says, go and do it. Go and do it." And Judas went out. We're told it was night. It certainly was night. It's night for him, but we're told that um, the disciples that either he was going to buy something for the remaining days of the feast or that he was going to give something for the poor because again he had the box and they were quite used to judas dispersing so judas is used uh, to giving to the poor and he's used to speaking for them but his heart's not in it his heart's not in it what's his real motive Well, we have to go to his heart for that. Only the Holy Spirit can take us to to his heart. And John tells us what his real motive was. He didn't suggest selling and giving to the poor because he cared for the poor. We're told that he said it because he was a thief. John 12, verse 6. He was a thief. Now, he wasn't a petty thief. He didn't go around thieving people as such. We'll see in a minute. He had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. He used to do it. That doesn't mean that he did it in the past. What it means in the Greek is that he did it regularly. It wasn't a one-off thing. It was an ongoing thing. So the treasure in this man's heart the treasure in this man's heart is an evil treasure. It's not the grace of God. It's not Christ himself, who's the pearl of great price. It's not love for Christ that dominates this man's heart. It's the world and love of the world. Used to take what was in it. Uh, Christ and the apostles themselves lived off the gospel. The apostles, as full-time preachers, they were to leave their own occupations. They left their nets, they left the tax collector's desk, which was a very lucrative occupation, by the way. When Levi left the tax collector's desk, and Christ said, Follow me, that was a, a big calling on his life. He wasn't just to become a Christian, he was becoming a preacher of the gospel. For that he had to leave his calling and to enter a new one. So they lived off the gospel. And the money box was essentially filled with the contributions of those who looked after them. Uh, those who were themselves the Lord's people. Uh, even the priests weren't allowed to have land. Uh, they lived off the tithes of the people. Now, the apostles were exactly the same, and so should the ministers of the gospel be today. It's, uh, I can understand that there may be some evangelistic situations where uh, a preacher of the gospel has to earn his living, just like Paul uh, was a tent maker when he was taking the gospel to, uh, to other locations. But the ordinary process that Christ has appointed in the church is that, as Paul says to Timothy, those who preach the gospel should live off the gospel. But the fact that they lived themselves from the givings of others didn't mean that they didn't have to give themselves no they were bound to give to the poor they saw christ giving to the poor and they were to follow that example and give to the poor themselves now friend you don't need to be rich to give maybe maybe you think that um, giving is somebody else's duty because somebody else has money or they have significant money and you don't have significant money maybe you yourself receive charity maybe you're maintained by the givings of others i too actually maintained by the givings of others and you may think that that excuses you from giving to the church or giving to the poor but it doesn't even if you receive charity you are to give charitably yourself and you must never make your poverty a reason for not giving and a reason for not showing kindness our lord commended the widow who gave her two mites the rest were giving a lot more, but you'll remember that he specially noted her and commended her because she gave out of her poverty. When the famine was eating away at the church in Jerusalem, we're told that some of the Greek churches gave out of their own poverty to help those in famine. So remember that. But in any case, it was Judas' practice to steal from this box, now it's hard for us to imagine that really stealing from the house of God. It's such a terrible thing. I mean, if you were to steal from anywhere, you would think that there would be something, something in you that would just stop you from stealing from the house of God, and you would probably say today, well, that that is something you wouldn't do yourself. You may be tempted, perhaps even if it's not your besetting sin, which I hope I hope it is not. But you could say, well, I might be tempted to take this, but I wouldn't take that. I would never, as I was passing by the church plate, put my hand in there and take out a £20 note or £40 or something like it. Well, maybe you wouldn't put your hand in the plate and lift notes, but does that mean that you're not robbing the house of God? What about withholding that money in the first place? Have you thought about that as robbery? Have you thought about that as taking what should be in the box? If you think of your tithe or if you think of your offering, after all, Malachi said to the people, Will a man rob God? He asked that question. And God says, you have robbed me. That was the message God gave to Malachi to give to the people. You have robbed me. And the people say, in what way have we robbed you? And the response God gave to the people was, in tithes and offerings. In tithes and offerings. And he says, if you bring your tithe into the house of God, he says, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you. Now, (laughs) Robbing God's house might not be as far from you as you think it is. You might not steal in quite the way Judas stole, but nonetheless withholding a tithe or an offering is called robbery by God. Robbing God. God's words and not mine. Now, friends, you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, should be a better judge of this than me. Um, covetousness and in the heart and what any person does with their resources is really in a way between themselves and the Lord, except that a preacher is called to ask all to examine themselves in the light of that. And... Um, we need to think about it. You know, this sin of, of covetousness and robbery takes many forms. I mean, Judas was obviously very fond of money. He was obviously very fond of it. But it can take many forms. Um, essentially, covetousness is a form of worldliness that, that looks for wealth to provide security. That's what it is. I've quoted to you several times that text in Proverbs, which says that, um, that the, the name of the Lord is a strong tower The righteous run into it and they are saved. The following verse says that the rich man's wealth is his strong city. So for the Christian, the Lord provides security in days of wealth and poverty, in days of prosperity and adversity. But the rich man's wealth is his strong city. That's his security. His security is in his securities, if you like. And that's why you see um, this kind of worldly covetousness. You see it in very different forms of behavior. The prodigal and the miser are miles apart. Here's the prodigal spending everything he's got, and here's the miser hoarding his coin and counting it. They both love money. But one has no self-control, and he, he wants to spend everything he's got on a lavish lifestyle, spending everything because he wants to enjoy the world now. The miser has more self-control and he's got more foresight, so he he keeps the wealth that he really values and he keeps it for a rainy day. In fact, he might live really sparingly. He might be Scrooge-like in his lifestyle. His mattress is full of notes or his bank account is really very healthy. Both these people are the same. They both love coin. One loves it for what it gets now, the other loves it or what it might get later. Oh, how true what the Bible says. If wealth increases, set not your heart upon it. Because you never know what that's going to lead to once you set your heart upon it. Because as the Bible says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently in connection with this wave of affliction that's come upon ourselves as a nation. What it has hit is our pockets, and what it will hit yet is our pockets. Again, I'm, I'm not minimising at all the deaths that have happened and all the grief associated with these things. I'm not minimising that, but this is a, an attack on our economy and an attack on our materialistic wealth and our materialistic lifestyle that has just broken all boundaries now for years. You just don't know where that leads. For ourselves, it's led to all kinds of evil and self-indulgence, pleasure-seeking, all kinds of perversions of sexuality. That's what happened to Judas too. It was the love of money that actually corroded anything good out of his life. And you'll notice that it was this act of breaking the flask and pouring the oil well, it was this act that was the clincher for him. Up till now, he had stuck with Christ. He had stuck with him, and uh, he, he thought that perhaps he would get glory and honor by, speaking to, by sticking to him. Well, he would if he was sticking to him in the right way. But obviously, he realized that money just didn't matter in the kingdom of Christ, and he didn't like that. His own ambitions were never going to be fulfilled because they weren't healthy ambitions anyway. The glory and honor that he sought weren't glory and honor in Christ and in spirit and in doing good, but the kind of power and glory that belongs to worldly people. And that's why immediately after this incident, we read in verse 14 here, Matthew 26, 14, then Judas went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, with the silver in his pocket, he looks for an opportunity uh, to put Christ into their hands. That's a fateful decision, friends. It's a fateful decision to go to the chief priests and to betray the Lord. I think we could say that with this decision, Satan takes a hold of him in a new way. We're told a few days later at the first Lord's table that uh, Satan entered into him and he went out that night and he looked for an opportunity to lead the chief priests to Christ. That, That was the Satan of action that went into him that night. But the Satan of resolution or purpose went into him right here in this house, the house of Simon the leper, where everybody was enjoying fellowship, And where a great act of worship and kindness was shown by this woman, that's when the Satan of purpose takes hold in him. I'm finished with this, he says. It's quite obvious that this man's idea of kingship and rule is not mine. There is no prosperity for me in this. There's no appreciation of what money really is and what money is for. This is an extravagant waste. I'm off to get what I can out of this man i'll get something out of him one way or another if he's not going to enrich me i'll enrich myself through him i'm willing to sell him for that and i'm willing to sell him for 30 pieces of silver and you know just as there's a way in which satan takes a hold of him here by resolving to leave the lord and resolving to go can we say to the dark side so there's a fearful way in which the Lord lets him go. Lets him go. The Lord doesn't chase him, doesn't send anybody to find where Judas is or what Judas is doing. God, Christ knows exactly where Judas has gone, and he knows exactly what Judas has gone to do. And although he will appear a few days later, and although he will sit at the same Passover with him, Christ knows what's in his heart. There's a fearful psalm describing this man, and uh, we read part of it and we sang it. The psalm outlines his opposition to Christ and Christ's solemn prayer for a curse to be exercised upon him. Well, how, how opposed that is to how we usually think of the Lord who came to seek and to save that which was lost. But we must never forget the sharp two-edged sword that comes from the mouth of the Saviour. We must never forget that. Let his days be few, Jesus said. Let his children be fatherless. That's a speedy end of life. Let them beg for their bread, because as as his family follows him, they are going to follow his ways too. So they will beg for their bread. In spite of your wealth, the Lord says, strangers, covetous extortioners will catch all you have and take it away. Even the 30 pieces of silver found their way back into the hands of, well, the chief priests were told were covetous. They were covetous extortioners. Everything for which he labored, strangers will make a prey of it. Why? Well, it says, let his posterity be cut off from the earth. Let his father's wickedness be called to remembrance. Obviously, his father was of the same kind too. And his mother's sin. Obviously, she was of the same kind too. See, none of this is random. None of this is just firing bolts of frustration at people in a random direction. These are the thought out prayers. Of the one who is judge of all the earth, why is it coming his way? Because he said he did not mind mercy, but he persecuted the poor and the needy. Now, that may be true in a general sense he He may have mistreated the poor. I think it's quite possible a lot of a lot of the people you know who who talk up their own interest in the poor. I've lived long enough to see them care very little for the poor when the push came to the shell, tragically. I've seen them fleece the poor for their own benefit. But I've, I've wondered recently, who, who are the poor and the needy here? Or better still, who is the poor and the needy? Christ praised these imprecations, these curses upon him because he did not Uh, mind the poor and the needy he's persecuted the poor and the needy because later on in verse 22 Christ says for I well he says do this for your own name's sake for I am poor and needy afflicted sore am I my heart within me also is wounded exceedingly he goes on to say I also am a vile reproach unto them made unto them and they that did upon me look shake their heads at me. I wonder, is the Lord really referring to himself there, as the one for whom Judas had no regard? Yes, he would have no regard for the poor and needy generally, but there was one who was poor, and there was one who was needy, and he ended up in opposition to him. In other words, his attitude to Christ primarily is what brings the curse upon his own head. Um, And that is the Christ that we're dealing with here. It's his judgment, you'll remember, that divides the sheep and the goats. It's it's his voice that invites those blessed of the Father into eternal life with him. It's his voice that dismisses the rest, saying, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire. The judgments, it is his seat. It's his judgment that's exercised on it. And it's his dismissal. We've got to recognize that that is Christ. Uh, we read a few days later that um when Christ was at the table, at the first Lord's table with Judas Iscariot, we're told that um, Christ was troubled in his spirit. And and he um he spoke about the betrayer. That one of you, he says, one of you here with me shall betray me. Now, of course, that betrayal had already happened in the sense that the that the 30 pieces of silver had changed hands Judas was just waiting to find a convenient place and a convenient time which he probably had already identified because he knew that later they would go on their own to Gethsemane Jesus when he was troubled in spirit were told turned and said and by the way Judas was immediately on his left or his right he was immediately to Christ's hand at the table anyway what you do he said to him do quickly do quickly what you do what you want to do judas what you've already planned judas with your 30 pieces in your pocket go oh, he says and do it quickly get on with it and and why is jesus so troubled have you ever wondered why jesus was so troubled well he was so troubled because he knew that Judas was fulfilling his role in scripture. That's why he was troubled. He knew that every step this man was taking was just filling in the details of the portrait that was painted for us in prophecy in the Old Testament. This man was closing his heart to all grace. And the only prayer Christ has for him is not a prayer of mercy, but of judgment. And that psalm is very much in the Lord's mind, at the Lord's table. There were good things in the Lord's mind. But as the Lord himself said at that table, he said, this is your hour, he says, and this is the power of darkness. Sorry, it wasn't at the table, he said that, but it's in connection with the events of that night. This is your hour. And this is the power of darkness. And Psalm 109 was in his mind too. He knows that man going out the door is damning himself. He knows he's condemning himself by turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you not afraid that your rejections of the gospel may culminate in this too? It's it's one thing to be aware that the gospel is still being preached to you and offered to you, and you're making a habit of rejecting it and making a habit of resisting the Lord Jesus Christ. Does it ever, ever bother you? Does it ever worry you or distress you That one of these rejections might be a rejection for the last time. That something similar to this psalm may be said of you. That your days are numbered and your doom is sealed. And when Judas leaves this room that's so fragrant, a room that is so fragrant with the glory of Christ. And the good treasure in this woman's heart. He goes out. He goes out of a room like that to perform a seedy transaction with these priests in the temple. He leaves a house where thousands of pounds have been poured out in love for the Lord to make a grubby little deal for 30 pieces of silver to sell the same person that had been celebrated and memorialized in these thousands of pounds of perfume. Thirty pieces of silver was the going price for a slave. It Was the going price for a slave. Ah, uh, Judas, is that all he meant to you? Three years you've been with him. Three years you've been in the presence of someone holy, harmless and undefiled. Three years you have been with holiness incarnate and seen his love and kindness. And you're selling him for 30 pieces of silver, the going price of a slave. And uh, even afterwards, when he comes back, uh, you remember later that night he comes back and he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the floor and he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. You know, it's a huge mistake to think that Judas there has, has some kind of um, change of heart in connection with his relationship to Christ. There's nothing of that at all. If there was anything of that, Judas would know that the Lord's door was always open. All he could do was go back to him and say that he was sorry and seek forgiveness from the Lord who would grant it. no none of that all it is is the sense of doom that comes upon a person who knows that he's made a net for himself and he's not going to extricate himself from it he realizes he's betrayed innocent blood not in the sense that he, he wants somehow to deliver that innocent blood no doesn't do anything in that direction at all this is a man who just knows that he's committed a terrible, terrible sin and that his, his, um, his future is worse than he thought it was going to be. Sense of doom. As the Hebrew says, what's left for him is a fearful looking for of condemnation. It's not that he loves the saviour all of a sudden, it's just that he's terribly afraid for himself. So he should be. What a contrast between his heart and the heart of Mary. Um, Again, my time has gone on, but can I just, I don't want to leave it there without saying two more things, just very quickly. Although that's Judas, I want you to notice two things about what he says in the room. First of all, it's really plausible. Sell it and give it to the poor. I could hear that suggestion being made in many a cold church committee room. Very plausible. Um, we'll see what's wrong with it tonight. But it was also persuasive, so much so that everybody in the room agreed with him. In fact, we're told by Matthew and Mark that the disciples, plural, were indignant, saying, why this waste? Now, the word indignant means, it actually comes from a root, which means to snort like a horse. In other words, they were visibly angry, visibly angry. Now, no, notice what the devil does. He puts the Lord's people out on each other. Here, there's a, an act full of grace, full of wonder, full of love, and the Lord's people suddenly fall out over it. Because of Judas, he can separate the brethren. Well, actually, he can unite the brethren. He he unites them here against Mary. Uh, that's what the devil does, and it's so bad that there's no one on her side. As I said earlier, were it, were it not from the lo- for the Lord Himself, who would speak in, on her side? But let's just leave it there. That's the thing in the eyes of Judas the eyes of a man condemned and on the precipice of a lost eternity. Thankfully, we can leave him. He brought a bad fragrance into the room, a bad fragrance of unbelief. Let's leave it. Thankfully, there's another pair of eyes who sees Mary in a very different way, who understands her heart and who appreciates her love. We'll see her, God willing, tonight. Let's close our service by singing. Uh, The praise of God in Psalm 49, page 275. Psalm 49, page 275, verse 16. Uh, You'll remember there was a famous prayer by uh, a man in the book of Proverbs, Give me neither poverty nor riches. And there's a lot in that. I mean, God sees fit to give riches, and we're thankful that he does do that. He, And it's a test, as well as a blessing. It's a test. He gives other people poverty, and that's a test too. Give me neither poverty nor riches. There's a lot of wisdom in that prayer. He goes on to explain why. But let's look at verse 16 here. Psalm 49, verse 16. Be not thou then afraid when one enriched thou dost see. Now, very often the reason God's people were afraid of wealth was because wealth was often used to persecute them. Uh, Sometimes their possessions would be seized by people who who were more powerful than themselves. Nor when the glory of his house advanced is on high. For he shall carry nothing hence. How easily we forget that, friends, we take nothing with us, nothing. When death is days doth end, nor shall this glory after him into the grave descend. We've got to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Although he his own soul did bless, whilst he on earth did live, and when thou to thyself dost well, Men will the praises give. So, of course, he congratulates himself on his achievements and other people congratulate you when you do well. But he to his father's race shall go. They never shall see light. Man honoured, wanting or lacking knowledge is like beasts that perish. Quiet, Singing. uh, Actually, I can't read my own writing. I'm sorry. I think it's Moravia. Verse, Verse 16 to the end of the psalm to the praise of God. Let's receive the blessing of the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.